Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our study through the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And as Jesus began this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he started not by telling us what to do, but he started by telling us who to be. He knew that conduct always follows character. And so in these first verses called the Beatitudes from the Latin word blessing, he tells us who we need to be in this inner part of our being. And he tells us that when we are that, we will be blessed, or the best English translation is happy, not by external stuff, but by him alone. It's only God who can satisfy the heart. These beatitudes we've seen are progressive, and so they start with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritual beggars. Blessed are those who come to the point in life when they realize they have absolutely nothing to give to God. They are beggars, and they need God to come and save them. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. They not only realize they're spiritual beggars, but they are sorry for their sin. They are deeply grieved by their sin against God. And blessed are those who are meek. They humble themselves. They not only realize they're spiritual beggars, they not only are mourning, but they humble themselves before God. And God says, these are the people who will have the true happiness that God, only God can give them. We've been looking at this chart of our lives. If we looked at a chart of our life, it looked something like this. Here are the great times and here are the tough times. Now, this year at the Bible Chapel, all of our staff will do about 40 plus weddings. We have about 40 plus weddings scheduled this year. We did hear one yesterday and uh, it's a great time of celebration, right? Everybody's happy. Everybody's rejoicing. It's a tremendous time of celebration. We try to talk them out of it, but they go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> and uh, everyone's happy at a wedding. And so we have happy times in our community, happy times in our life, great things happening. Also some challenging times. We've already, uh, since January, had over 10 memorial services through our staff. We had, I did one here on Friday, young, young person. Those are tough. And certainly, the emotions of death, the emotions of celebration, they impact us. We can't, we're human. We can't help but be moved up and down by those things. But Jesus says there's something deeper than that. He says that, that in the highs and the lows, we can have this happiness, this, this peace, this contentment, this satisfaction that surpasses human understanding. We can have this character within us deep inside that is not based on what's going on in our life that day but comes from, from knowing who Jesus is and who he is to us. And so that's how these Beatitudes build. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who mourn the fact they have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who humble themselves. And today, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? 
Say it with me. They'll be filled. They'll be satisfied. Jesus begins in this verse with two natural desires. Who here doesn't know? Whether you're in Wilkinsburg or Robinson, whether you are in Washington or here in the South Hills or joining us online, who doesn't know what it's like to be hungry? Now, certainly some people experience that to some extent more than others, but everyone here knows what it's like to be hungry. Even before we can put sounds together to make words, we are letting our parents know that we are hungry and thirsty, right? And we're letting them know some other disgusting stuff, but let's just, start, so let's just keep with hungry and thirsty. To be hungry and thirsty means you yearn for something. You long for something. You have a strong desire for something. You want it desperately. In fact, you are so hungry. You are so thirsty. That is all you're thinking about. It is controlling you. It tugs at your emotions. It directs your actions. The longing becomes the leader and you become the follower. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, long, yearn, desire, want something desperately. When they do hunger and thirst after the right things, Jesus says, they're going to be what? Going to be filled. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be full. They're going to be free from want. Now this weekend, as we take time to, to remember those who have paid the ultimate price, we also celebrate, don't we? We celebrate our country and, and what it means, the fact that we can come and worship freely. And uh, this is kind of the start of the summer. And so this is the, the time when we, we fire up the grill. And uh, man, this weekend, we'll have those, like the big juicy hamburgers, right? With some serious cheese. And it's Memorial Day weekend, so only American cheese. You can't have anything but American cheese. Pickles, tomatoes, onions, lettuce. And then you put those on the grill and you just let them grill just a little bit. And you put mustard on the top one and barbecue sauce on the bottom one. And you eat those hamburgers. And then, and then you have hot dogs. And, and since we're in Pittsburgh, right, we have kielbasas. You have to have a kielbasa. And when you, and when you grill a kielbasa just right, it like just pops in your mouth, doesn't it? And then the juice just starts running all down <laughs> your chin. But you don't care because when you're wiping off the juice, you're already, you're already digging into the baked beans and potato salad and coleslaw, corn on the cob, and then it's time for dessert. And then you get this choc chocolate brownie, a thick chocolate brownie with a thick layer of chocolate ice uh, frosting, and then a big scoop of chocolate ice cream, and then you put some chocolate syrup on that. <laughs> because it's Memorial Day, Lori will always put strawberries and blueberries and a little whipped cream. Just a little patriotic, right? And then you put some chocolate on top of that. <laughs> and then you wash it down with a Diet Coke because you got to watch your calories on this thing. <laughs> and after you eat that, you are stuffed. You are filled. You are full. You are satisfied. You are without want. And that's the kind of filling that Jesus is talking about hungering and thirsting that Jesus calls for leads us to complete satisfaction. And it's ongoing because after you eat that big meal, what are you going to say? I am so full, I will never eat another meal again. 
And then that night, you want some more. And you keep coming back. You keep hungering and thirsting after the food. But Jesus is not talking about food, is he? Jesus is not talking about another purchase. Jesus is not talking about another experience. Jesus is not talking about another place to travel or another accomplishment. Jesus is not talking about a relationship, hunger and thirst after the right relationship, and you'll be satisfied. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus says, look again at verse 6. Blessed are those who yearn for, who long for, who desire, who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they will be filled. Now, a lot of you have been believers for a long time. So all of us need to be able to explain to those who ask us, right, what certain things mean. So if someone came up to you this week in your office, on the elevator, up the stairs, wherever you are, in the classroom, someone came up to you and said, what is righteousness? What would you say? How would you answer them? Pretty important, war, pretty important word, isn't it? Used, uh, translated 213 times, 213 times in the New International Version. But what does it mean? How would you answer righteousness? So let's spend some time today talking about this thing Jesus is telling us to hunger and thirst after. Let's give a definition of righteousness, and then I want to give you three words that kind of round it out and explain how you achieve this righteousness that God is calling us to. So here's the definition. Righteousness means to be guiltless, blameless, perfect, holy, pure, clean, and upright. That's all it means. Then what do you do in your spare time after you do all that, right? Guiltless, blameless, perfect, holy, pure, clean, upright. Righteousness does not describe an outstanding citizen. Righteousness does not describe a moral person. Righteousness does not describe someone that we would say is just by nature good and kind. Righteousness is sinless and perfect. It is God's standard for man. The word actually comes from a river reed. In the Old Testament, a river reed was a construction tool that was used to make sure a fence was perfect on the top. It's like a level today. And that river reed was put there, and those building the fence, or those building a house, or those laying stones would use the river reed to make sure that stone was just perfect. And God uses that river reed, metaphorically, figure of speech, to say, that's who I am. I am perfect. I am the straight edge. I am the rule by which all things are evaluated. And then he goes one step further. In Leviticus 11, 19, and 20, he says, because I am holy, what? I want you to be holy too. Be holy as I am holy. I want you to be perfect. I want you to be righteous. I want you to be guiltless, sinless, just as I am. And just in case we think that's just for the Old Testament, Peter brings it to the New Testament, inspired by God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, as obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, what? Be holy because I am holy. That's the highest standard 
That's righteousness. And guess what? It's unreachable. We can't do it. So what kind of proposition is this beatitude? Jesus says hunger and thirst after something you can never get to, and then you'll be happy. What kind of invitation is that? It kind of sounds like perpetual disappointment, doesn't it? But what if there was a way we could be made righteous? What if something could enable us to do what we couldn't do? What if the satisfaction came from a state based on the work of someone else? Let's describe... Let me describe righteousness in, in three terms. And whether you are in Robinson at PTI or whether you're in Washington at Wheeling and Maine or whether you're at Wilkinsburg on Central Street, whether you're right here in the Southwest Campus, whether you're joining us online, these are three terms you need to know. Righteousness is one. Here are three terms as Christians or as those God's working on. Three terms we've got to know, all right? If I misspell them, you can tell me. First one is justification. We'll go through these. Justification means coming to Christ. The second one is sanctification. Sanctification means growing in Christ. And the third one is, anyone know? Glorification. Being with Christ. Justification, coming to Christ. Growing in Christ. Sanctification. Glorification, being with Christ. So let's start with justification. Work our way through these. Here's a definition. Justification is an instantaneous, one time, for all time, act of God. Keyword, act of God. In which he sees our sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us. So here I am. I am a spiritual beggar. There is absolutely nothing I can do to make, to have a relationship with the living God. Nothing. I mourn the fact that I am away from God and can do nothing about it. I humble myself before God so that he can do for me what I can't do for myself. I trust in Jesus Christ alone as the one who did all the work for me. I realize I'm a spiritual beggar, but God loved us so much. He sent his son who was perfect, who was guiltless, who was sinless. And this perfect sinless one went to the cross and died on my behalf. And so when I trust in Jesus, that's what I'm doing. I am saying, I am a spiritual beggar, but you are God, perfect and sinless, who died for me. I am trusting in the work of Christ as my own. I am asking God to take the work of Christ and put it on me, ascribe it to me, give it to me, accredit it to me. And so when we do that, God looks on us, and in justification, he does two things. 
When we are justified, when we trust in Christ, two things happen. First, God looks at us and says, not guilty. You are not guilty anymore, not because of who you are. You're a spiritual beggar, but because of what Jesus did for you. And I am taking the work of Jesus and I am imputing it. I am putting it onto you. And then he says, you are not guilty and you are righteous. I am taking the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Jesus, the guiltlessness of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus. I am taking that and I am putting it on you. He imputes those things to us, forgiveness and righteousness. I love that word impute. It means to attribute, to assign, to a credit. And so when Adam sinned, his guilt was imputed to us. We were assigned the guilt of Adam's sin. So now all have sinned. When Christ died on the cross, my sin was imputed to him. God assigned my sin to Jesus and he died for it on the cross. And so when I trust in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to me. Man, what a rich word, concept, truth, justification. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me with a robe of righteousness. I love that picture. Here we are. We stand before God. We are guilty. We are spiritual beggars. We say, finally say, I mourn my sin. I can't do this on my own. I trust in Jesus Christ to do it all for me, his completed work. And God says, not guilty. And then he takes a robe of righteousness. And he puts us around it, puts it around us. Think about it. Everyone here is trusted in Christ. You are wearing today a robe of righteousness. And in Romans chapter five, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. For just as the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. There's that imputation of sin, right? But here's the imputation of righteousness, for also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. We are righteous because of Christ. There seem to be two complaints about Christianity. One, it's too hard, right? God expects me to be perfect, and I'm always trying to do these things to be perfect, and I, I can never reach his standard. It's too hard. And so we say to that person, you're right, it's not too hard, it's impossible. And so here's a free gift. You can have this free gift, it's yours. And then what's the other complaint? It's too easy. It's too hard, it's too easy. It's too easy, it can't be a free gift. I've gotta work my way to God. But when I try to work my way to God, I can't get to him. Well, it's free, well, it's too easy. So I'm gonna keep working my way to God. And the people get caught, don't they, in this vicious cycle. But here's the great truth of justification. Jesus has done it all. It's free because it was costly. Don't think it's just cheap. It cost Jesus coming from heaven to earth and taking our sin up on him and dying on the cross and God's wrath. Poured. You think God hates sin? He poured his wrath on his son. 
so that we could be clothed in righteousness. And the moment we trust, the nanosecond we trust in Christ, we are righteous, complete, and full. Free and complete in Christ. There's an old writer named J.C. Ryle. And, and listen to what he says. He says, a believer can never be more justified, more pardoned, more forgiven, more at peace with God than he is the first moment he believes. I hold firmly that the justification of the believer is finished, perfect, and complete work. And check this out. And that the weakest saint, though he may not know it or feel it, is completely justified as the strongest. I hold firmly that by our election, calling, and standing in Christ, admit no degrees of increase or decrease. I would go to the stake, God helping me, Ryle says, for the glorious truth that in a matter of justification before God, every believer is complete in Christ. And that's some good news, isn't it? You are complete in Christ when you trust in Jesus Christ. It is final. It is free. It is full. And God will never change his mind. One of my favorite verses, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, for the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. No recalls. We're all irregulars, but no recalls. His gifts and calls are irrevocable. In Christianity, there are two big categories, right? Catholic church and Protestant church. And the reason those categories exist are based on this truth of justification. Let me tell you how it came about. Martin Luther was born on November the 10th, 1483. He was raised in a very strict home, very strict school. He never even saw a Bible until he was 18 years old. And when he saw a Bible in college, he started reading it and his heart was stirred. Right after that, three things happened in his life. One, he had a childhood friend who was killed in a brawl. And Luther started thinking, what if that had been me? What happens when you die? Not long after that, God got his attention again. He was carrying a sword. It slipped out, went on his leg, cut his main artery in his leg. He was bleeding to death. A friend had to run for help. And while Luther was there on the ground thinking he was dying, he cried out to the Virgin Mary. Then, third thing happened, he's caught in a lightning storm, a huge thunderstorm, not like one we have around here. I mean, it was, it, he thought he was going to die in this lightning storm. And he cried out, Saint Anna, if you save me from this, I'll become a monk. And he did, much to his father's dismay. At the monastery, Luther yearned to have peace with God. He, he desired to be satisfied. He tried to earn it. He prayed. He fasted. He kept the rules. He begged for the monastery. He went out and, in the streets and humbled himself to beg for the money for the monastery. He tortured his body. He prayed to 21 different saints. If anyone hungered and thirsted after righteousness, it was Martin Luther. He realized he was spiritually bankrupt. He just didn't know what to do to change the situation. He became friends with a guy named John von Stoppitz. And, and while Luther was saying, I don't get it. I'm trying to earn my way to God, but there's no satisfaction in my heart. Stoppitz said this. Remember that Christ came into the world 
for the pardon of our sins. Christ does not terrify. He consoles. Look at the wounds of Christ, and you will there see shining clearly the purpose of God toward man. We cannot understand God out of Christ. But Luther saw Jesus as a cruel judge. He could never achieve the kind of righteousness that Jesus called for. In fact, he got to the point where he despised Jesus. He said he couldn't look at a crucifix without despising Jesus. He saw God as a, like a cosmic tease, offering, offering this hope of heaven, but damning men and women to hell. In 1510, he was commissioned to go to Rome, and he thought, finally, I can go where the church started. There, I'll find my answers. The Renaissance was going on. St. Peter's was being built in Rome. Michelangelo was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Leonardo da Vinci was inventing. Balboa was getting ready to sell off, and he would discover the Pacific Ocean. But Luther didn't see any of that stuff because he was trying to find peace, and he went straight to the church, and he did his offerings, and he did his prayers, and he put his body through torture, but no peace was found. Finally, through the Holy Spirit and the influence of his friend Stoppitz, Luther realized that he could not earn his way to God. He realized that salvation couldn't be brought about by human endeavor only through the work of Christ on the cross. It was through the Holy Spirit's work, his reading of Scripture in Romans, and his friend Stoppitz. In Romans chapter uh, 4, he read something that stopped him in his tracks. He read this, however, to the one who does not what? To the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them, is imputed to them, is assigned to them as righteousness. And Luther finally found what he was looking for all along. That's when the Reformation began. And the cry of the Reformation, uh, Luther was a protester. And one who protests is called a what? A Protestant. And the cry of Protestantism or the cry of the Reformation was justification by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works. Now, Reformation is history read in any public school textbook. But here's the question. Have you had a public, you, you know about the public Reformation, have you had a personal Reformation? Have you come to that point in your life when you say, I'm a spiritual beggar, I, I can't work my way to God, I can't do it. It's impossible. My best effort on my best day falls so far short, doesn't even register. And so I trust in Jesus Christ alone. Have you had that time of justification? It is a one time for all time event happening. Trust. Remember Ryle's quote, the believer can never be more justified, more pardoned, more forgiven, more at peace with God than the first moment he believes. Has that happened in your life? Now, if it has, 
and you've hungered and thirsted after that. So you started this righteousness, this process of righteousness because you're justified. The second part of it is what we call sanctification. Sanctification comes from the word holy, and it means to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The question is, are you doing that? Are you growing? Sanctification is the progressive work of God that makes the progressive work of God and man together. It's a partnership with God that makes us more like Christ. And so Christ does all the work of justification, and then he helps us do the progressive work of sanctification. Does that make sense? Justification one time for all time. Sanctification, if we looked at it like this, remember we use this uh, illustration. Here's where we come to Christ. Here's where we go to heaven with the Lord. And sanctification looks like this. There are ups and downs. There are times when we, when we fall. There are times when we fail. But over the long haul, there's growth. That's the process of sanctification. We're never going to be perfect. We're in a process. So Laura and I got married on August the 9th, 1980. Seems like only yesterday when my very young bride walked down the aisle. Today, we are no more married than the second after that pastor news at the Perry Presbyterian Church said, you are husband and wife. No more married today than we were back then. When, right after then, we had our, our huge reception of cake and assorted nuts and, and butterments. And ours was really fancy because we had a groom's cake, a chocolate groom's cake, which was, I just thought you should know that, um, by the way. <clears throat> we are no more married today. These almost 35 years later, no more married today than we were that night on August the 9th. But these years together, the experiences we have shared, the great joys and some disappointments, the loss of parents, moves that we've made, raising our four children, our relationship has grown and continues to grow. And so I hungered and thirsted after Lori, wanting a relationship with her. And then we're married, right? And I still hunger and thirst after the growing that relationship. The marriage part is like sanctification. It's done. Sorry. The marriage part is like justification. I saw your quizzical looks. Like, what is he talking about? <laughs> the marriage part is like justification. It's done. The growing in that, the growing together is sanctification. We are always learning who Jesus is. We are always learning about who, who the Father is, or we should be. As dear pants for streams of water, Psalm 42. So my soul pants for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So if you are a believer, we're still hungering and thirsting after this 
part of righteousness called sanctification. We still want to grow. And we believe here at the Bible Chapel, there are five things you have to be doing if you're going to be growing. We call them the five essentials. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. You got to be in the word. People gave their lives, and we will celebrate that and remember that tomorrow. They gave their lives so that we could be here today, and you could go home and open up whatever version of the Bible you use. It is a crime not to do that. It's a sin. And you got to determine whether you're going to read in the morning or noon or in the evening. It doesn't matter when you read. It's that you take God's love letter and you read it and you learn who he is because that's how you grow, right? That's how you know him. That's how you grow in your relationship with him. And then he tells you who you are and when you're off base and how you get back on base. Get back on track. You gotta be reading God's word. You gotta be involved in worship. Men and women died so we could be here worshiping today and we take it for granted. We have to be those who love to come together and worship and sing songs together and praise the Lord together. And that encourages us as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Word, worship, connect. You gotta be connected with other believers. You cannot live the Christian life alone. You need someone to be there when you fall down to help you up. And when they fall down, you need to be there to help them up. Word, worship, connect, serve. God has given you a gift and you gotta be using it. He's given you a gift. If you're not using it, you're wasting a tremendous gift of God, part of the sanctification process. What is your gift and how are you gonna use it? And sharing the message of Christ. We have the message of eternity. Who's the last person you shared it with? When is the last time you shared the message of Jesus Christ? How are you going to grow if you're not telling others about what has changed your life? Better live a life in such a way that others are asking, man, what is different about you? You're a little strange. You're strange in a good way. What's up with that? Word, worship, connect, serve, share. Are you growing as a believer? Justification, sanctification, and then glorification means the minute we die, we're with God. We are in heaven with ever, forever, for him. Romans 8, 30 says those who were, those who he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, past tense, and those he justified, he also what? Glorified, past tense. It's done. In God's eyes, you're there. It's done. Justified, past tense, glorified, past tense, and now we're in this sanctification process of righteousness. So the question is, do you know for sure? Do you know for sure that if you died today, you would wake up and see Christ? Do you know for sure? You can. Do you know for sure that you will spend eternity in heaven. See, happy are those who yearn for, who long for, who starve for righteousness. Having been justified as a believer, now growing in their relationship with God, wanting to know Christ more intimately, wanting to follow hard after him, wanting to be a passionate follower of him. Because when you do that, 
when you've been justified, when you're in the process of sanctification, and when you're going to be with him, that, Jesus says, that's how you're satisfied. That's how you are full. And Jesus says, I am with you every step of the way, and I'll give you everything you need to do what I'm calling you to do. One of my uh, favorite Olympic moments took place in 1992. A runner from Great Britain named Derek Redmond was favored to win a medal in the 400-meter race. So he takes off, and about 150 meters in, you can see, pulls up with a hamstring. So Redmond absorbed the pain for a while as the runners uh, finished the race, disappointed and in pain on the track. He finally, he finally got to his feet. Some people come out to help him. He waves them off, and he gets to his feet. He's going to finish the race and he starts hopping around the track. And right as he's hopping around the track, some guy comes out. And uh, we find out later, it's his dad. And he comes out, and he helps him around the track. And he walks with him. And I love this part coming up here. There's that official coming and saying, you can't be on the track. Watch his dad. Watch his dad. Get out of here. (laughs) Get out of here. Satan comes, doesn't he? He says, you can't do this. You can't finish the race. And the Holy Spirit right there with us says, get out of here. Later on, the next few days, Redmond was on a bunch of television shows. They knew, by that point, everyone knew it was his father. And so the interview asked him, one interview asked him, what did your father say when he came out? Redmond said, my father came up to me and he put his arm around me and he said, son, we started this together. We can finish this thing together. And that's exactly what, what God tells us, isn't it? Our heavenly father, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this, those that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paraphrase, hey, we started this thing together. We're going to finish this thing together. Kirk is going to come out and Susie's going to come out and lead us in a last song we're going to ask in a second pastoral staff and elders in this service to come forward. But here's what I'm asking of you. The question is this. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you been justified? Have you come to that point when you realize you're spiritually bankrupt? Have you mourned your sin? Have you humbled yourself before God? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you had that time in your life when the heavenly father looked at you and said, because of your trust in Christ, you are not guilty. And here, put on this robe of righteousness. Have you done that? And today's the day. And we would love the opportunity to pray with you during this song or after the service. Some of you, you've trusted in Christ. And man, you love the truth, right? You're no more justified today than then you were the first moment you believe the weakest saint and the strongest saint justified before God. 
But Jesus is saying, if you really want to be satisfied, if you really want to be full, if you really want to have everything I've got to offer you, you got to keep hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You've got to be in the word. You've got to be in worship. You've got to be connected with other believers. You've got to be serving. You've got to be sharing. You've got to be doing the things you need to do. I'm, I'm with you on the track. I'll take you all the way to the end. The work I started, I'll complete. I'm right here to help you. But, but let's step it up together. Let's do the things God's calling us to do together. Let's not look for happiness and stuff and achievement and a job. Find that happiness right here in your heart. Only I can give that to you. As a believer, he's calling you to that today. And we'd love to pray with you as you say, yeah, that's me. That's me. And I want to step it up. And I want to pray with someone today to make that official. I mean, stepping up by God's grace, I want to be what God's called me to be.